Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They're veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope's Tackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. I am here with uh, Chris Jenny, and we want to thank Jim Etson for being on the podcast today. Uh, Jim's been a friend of Cato for a long time. He's been involved in the tactical community and the fire and EMS training for decades, and we asked him to come and talk to everybody because of his active assailant, his work with active shooter research, and uh, his point of view as someone who trains fire and uh, first responders throughout the country, some of the lessons that he's learned. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, for those uh, folks that aren't following you uh, on Facebook, which I love the post, by the way, can you tell us a little bit about your background and then... Uh, how you ended up kind of in this little, I wouldn't call it a niche because a lot of it's unified command, but also mass casualty active assailant type stuff. Absolutely. Well, I currently serve as a uh, staff lieutenant and the supervisor of a training division for a fire department just outside the city of Detroit. I also serve as the fire department and emergency medical services coordinator for all 40 law enforcement agencies within our county, which is Oakland County, Michigan, uh, serving a population of approximately 1.3 million people. And uh, prior to my uh, now 28 years with my department, um, I was a corpsman in the United States Navy. And uh, when I got out of the Navy in 1994, uh, shortly thereafter, I formed the International Tactical EMS Association, which served uh, for many years as a professional organization for SWAT medics and physicians, and uh, have also worked very closely with uh, the National Tactical Officers Association for many years. And I would say that the the niche that you refer to uh, is collaboration, collaboration between law enforcement, 
the fire service and EMS when it comes to critical incident response. Thank you. And if you've, I know you've listened to a few episodes of our podcast, so I just want to be clear that we, uh, we are partners, even though we might make fun of firemen every now and again. <laughs> but it's okay because I have friends that are firemen and they make fun of us and they're not necessarily wrong about what they say either. So let's talk a little bit about some of the common issues you've seen. I know actually I talked to you when you were uh, at a recent uh, active shooter scene a month or so ago that was the topic all across the country. But uh, I know you've gone to lots of them, interviewed lots of folks from the fire side as well as the law side. And what are some of the common issues and themes you see that, uh, especially in, in the decades of experience you have, that we can't still seem to get right? Well, as you mentioned, uh, for many years, I've often visited the crisis sites uh, of these incidents uh, shortly thereafter, certainly not to get in the way uh, of, uh, of local emergency responders or to necessarily share any insight that, my ha- that I might have. I really go, go there with the intent of learning, learning as, as much as I can from the first responders, from the survivors, and pay that information forward in other training venues without uh, necessarily getting into specifics or uh, revealing specific sources. And like, I I know there's many people out there that review the after action reports and and there's a lot of value in that, but I think many of us realize that not everything finds its way into the AARs, but uh, command, uh, sometimes the lack or delay when it comes to unified command, particularly communication, and uh, you know, certain tactics uh, are always are always issues. I, I often say that uh, no one's uh, going to manage one of these incidents without making uh, a multitude of of errors or or mistakes. Uh, these incidents are all extremely challenging and very difficult to navigate through. But at the end of the day, we want to try and get more things right than wrong which will hopefully translate into lives being saved. Yes, and we've talked in the past, you know, some of the common themes like Travis did in uh, his his reports, and we see it in federal reports about indiscriminate parking, self-deployment, but it always comes up unified command. Unified command comes up integration of fire, EMS, and law enforcement and how that works. And that that led you to develop a, a high-risk unified command class. And you've been teaching that uh, all over the country. I think you recently just had one on the East Coast, right, or the Southeast? I've been, I've been putting quite a few of them on lately. Yeah, tell us a little bit about where that class came from and, and what it does. And, uh, and honestly, why I think, uh, personally, we all should go to it. And because it, it keeps happening, it's a recurring friction point that we can easily reduce um, with a, a lot of return on investment for really a little bit of effort. Well, I appreciate the kind words uh, regarding the training. And I think we all wish that, like you said earlier, it wasn't necessary. But what I wanted to do was create a one-day program because the longer a program is, the more challenging it can be for emergency responders, uh, particularly command officers, to attend it. So I wanted to try to create a one-day package that uh, shares information 
uh, gathered from regions all throughout uh, the United States and even beyond that can assist from the on the law enforcement side of the house that first arriving patrol sergeant or lieutenant manage the first 30 to 60 minutes of that incident working off the hood of their car or working out of the back of a command vehicle hopefully shoulder to shoulder with their fire service or or EMS counterpart and i think that everyone listening to this would agree that the number one priority in when responding to active violence is stopping the threat stopping the killing but i would argue beyond that and, and oftentimes you'll hear people say we need to stop the killing and stop the dying and and i certainly can address the fact that uh, we need to try and achieve that as simultaneously as possible and not necessarily in a linear manner when the situation allows for it. But I would argue that establishing hasty, co-located, unified command is the number two priority right behind stopping the threat on all of these incidents. And the sooner that happens, uh, the more dividends it'll pay in the coming minutes and hours, the longer it takes for that hasty co-located unified command to be formed, the more the incident is going to spin out of control. Hey, tell us why you want to keep that as the uh, number two priority behind uh, stopping the killing. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Absolutely. I, and because I think that it's it's really the linchpin on everything that we're talking about. The, uh, the, the initial contact team, whether it be a solo officer or a team with two, three or four members, they're going to be autonomous. They're going to hopefully deploy into that environment as quickly as possible and on their own initiative, gather intel, move to the threat and stop that violence as quickly as we can. But as more and more personnel show up, and when we're talking about an urban or suburb, uh, suburban environment, you, you'll have dozens of officers showing up in the first few minutes and possibly hundreds of hour, hundreds of officers showing up within the first hour or so, there's gotta be some command and control. So, so, so when, when I talk about the hasty co-located unified command, really what that, what that hinges on as much as anything is that, that someone, whether they have formal rank or not, showing up after that initial contact team, setting up a hasty command post, and setting up a hasty command post that's inviting enough for their fire service or EMS partner to join them. So some first arriving sergeants or lieutenants or maybe even a senior officer or deputy without formal rank, but maybe they're the fifth one to arrive and they're subscribing to that fifth man philosophy or linebacker, a lot of terminology as you go from region to region, they're going to take that initial command they have to determine where that hasty command post is going to have going to be. They need to broadcast the fact that they're taking command and they need to do whatever they can to encourage their fire service partner to join or counterpart to join them. Now, some of that hinges on the risk appetite of that first arriving fire supervisor. So that first arriving patrol supervisor may want to set up at the breach point or the entry point into the building but that might be a little too close for that fire department or EMS supervisor. So if they select a hasty command post that's a, just a, a little bit more remote, then we can establish that hasty co-located unified command. And those two bosses 
can start sharing intel in real time and start solving problems in real time. So one of the things I know that you uh, propose in the past, and if you could elaborate on it, is how do we do that, right? Like it's easy for us to talk about it. It's easy for us to do some tabletops. It's even easy for us to go out and do um, exercises. But in reality, it's a culture shift a little bit. And it depends on where you work. Some places don't struggle with this as much as others. But I kind of think about it like you don't get to decide when the big one hits your particular agency in your community. You don't just, I only go up to bat when I hit home runs. I only, only uh, do the big calls, right? And so you have to build this culture and this relationship in smaller segments on smaller calls on the ones that may not end up ultimately being the big one. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Cause I've, I've read some of your thoughts on that and it'd be, I think, I think they're great ideas and we should implement them more. It, it's not even formal. Sometimes it's informal. I agree hundred percent Marcus. And uh, how I describe it is if we're only setting up unified command on the once in a career or twice in a career incident, then it's going to be an afterthought. It'll be 30 minutes after the after the, uh, the arrival of uh, first responders or 45 minutes afterwards, where someone in that command post uh, on the law enforcement side will say, oh, that's right, we really need to have somebody from the fire department or EMS standing next to us. But instead, they are staged blocks away. So my recommendation when I speak to police chiefs and sheriffs and other law enforcement command officers is anytime they're standing up, even an informal command structure, they should have their fire department counterpart standing next to them. And examples might be a barricade, a bomb threat, a wide area search for a missing person. And if the police chiefs and fire chiefs and other law enforcement command officers are doing that on a regular basis on those mid-size incidents, then it will become that culture that you were describing. And that goes both ways because I say to the fire chiefs and fire department command officers and, and, and EMS command officers that they need to do the same thing. Whenever there's a structure fire, a hazardous material release, or let's say a, a technical rescue such as a trench rescue, they should have their law enforcement counterparts standing next to them as well. And if they're doing that on the incidents that occur with more frequency or regularity, then when the major incident occurs, it just happens organically. Yeah, you're building reps. You're building trust with each other. You're understanding how each other thinks, the expectations of one another, as well as reducing all those friction points. Friction points of people, personalities, communication. Yeah, I, there's, there's not really a downside to doing that except for just doing it. Well, you used a key word there, and that's trust. And I mean, everything starts with What's the relationship between those agencies on the street? That's going to be the foundation for everything that we're talking about. So in my community, we have extraordinary, an extraordinarily good relationship between our police department and our fire department. And I think that extends countywide. But we all know that it, that isn't necessarily the case in other communities or other regions. So you want to try and build that relationship. You want to take advantage of the many opportunities there are for those agencies to collaborate. And then the best way to further build that trust is over time and through training to the point where when law enforcement says to fire or EMS, we need you to enter this particular environment. 
then fire and EMS will do so without delay. But we've had many incidents in recent years where that request has been made. And because those bosses aren't standing next to each other, fire and EMS are not entering that environment as quickly as law enforcement would like them to. And that forces the law enforcement commanders to go to plan B or, or sometimes even plan C when it comes to casualty extraction and casualty movement and uh, even extends to the transportation of victims. There were uh, two incidents in relatively recent history. I think a lot of people know about the Century 16 Theater in Aurora and the number of victims that were transported by patrol vehicle there. Very similar circumstances occurred in Dayton, Ohio with the incident that they had there where they also transported uh, nearly 20 victims by patrol vehicle. And the law enforcement officers in both those communities would say that they would have gladly deferred that to fire and EMS, but the clock was ticking. They felt as though people were dying at their feet. And at the end of the day, LEOs are going to look for work, take initiative, and solve problems. And that's exactly what they do in circumstances like this when fire and EMS, for a variety of reasons, is slow to respond into the environment. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a, it's almost understanding each other's language, right? So there's a very disciplined ICS model in the majority of fire EMS calls and a structure to that organization, whereas 90% of police work is unstructured, self-deployment, uh, envelopment, flanking, and then it kind of, then it, then it slows itself down and organizes. And, and fire does that a little bit. And I think, and, and you're the fireman, I'm not, but my experience watching and going to a lot of fires in my town, they'll self-deploy a little bit, but there's still a really structured manner in which that happens. So we, we can drive fire EMS crazy with that, but then fire EMS can drive us crazy because when we need them to self-deploy and be a little bit unstructured, that's a different language for them. And it's a very small percentage of their life that that applies to. And so it's very hard to switch gear. It's just like with us, it's hard to switch that gear for that, you know, less than 10% of your whole career, you're involved in these larger incidents. Would you, would you agree with that? Or am I off a little bit? No, I think you're spot on. And I, I think that, uh, you know, it's just that cultural difference where uh, law enforcement officers from day one of their academy are taught that every incident comes with risk and they just need to learn how to mitigate that risk uh, as best they can. In fire and EMS on day one, they're taught about scene safety. And one of the things I think that needs to happen is that uh, one of the first questions that fire and EMS will ask during not only these critical incidents, but let's say a, a stabbing or a shooting at a, at a local bar, is they're staging and they're waiting for law enforcement to say, that the scene is safe or the scene is secure. And then generally without hesitation, they'll enter that environment and do what they do. One of the things that I propose is that we add a single word to that question. And the question is no longer, is it safe, but is it safe enough? And when law enforcement says it's safe enough to enter that environment, then fire and EMS should proceed without hesitation. But, if the hasty co-located unified command doesn't exist 
and they're not benefiting from the same real-time intel that law enforcement has, they're still going to be hesitant. And I think what happened uh, at the Pulse nightclub, uh, and it's happened in numerous other instances as well too, but uh, at the Pulse nightclub, law enforcement went in and uh, put the offender on his heels. He barricaded. And other than, other than the specific location where he was barricaded, law enforcement took possession of the rest of the club. They owned it. And it consequently became a warm zone. So then they requested that the fire department entered that environment to start dealing with those casualties. But because those bosses weren't standing next to each other, the fire department supervisors, understandably so, you know, because they had just heard some gunfire. It's a very dynamic, fluid incident. They're like, that seems a little sketchy. Uh, remotely, they're, they're saying that. But if they're standing hip to hip and shoulder to shoulder, and they can turn to that patrol sergeant or lieutenant and say, are you sure it's safe enough for us to go in there? And that sergeant or lieutenant replies, we've got it. We own it. We, you know, he's, he's bunkered. He's not going to represent a threat. Uh, there are numerous officers between him and the casualties. And I'd like to believe that that KST co-located unified command existed, that that, uh, that that trust would have existed as well. And I believe that those firefighters would have gone in. Yeah, that's a great, a great point. It's safe enough. And, and even, I think we even get a little rigid in the definition of hot zone, warm zone. And, and we're like, we need a line. We need a line that delineates and like, well, the that's the warm zone. But until that guy's dead or in custody or barricaded, he could change where the warm zone is at any given time. So uh, it's not just something we draw on a map and digit. It, it could move. Absolutely. And one example that I give is that let's say that there's a there's an active violence incident occurring. The initial arriving LEOs form a contact team and they go in and they are searching for the offender, bypassing casualties. They are they are scope locked. I mean, they are hyper focused on stopping that violence. But they are the only ones inside at the time. So one of the things that I preach per se is we certainly don't want to distract that contact team or multiple contact teams from that mission. But when they encounter casualties on the inside, if they could take just a moment, even on the move, to communicate to either dispatch or that boss outside the confirmation of casualties and maybe their location, then that's going to let everyone know this is not a swatting call. This is a legit critical incident. We do have people down, and then we need to start forming other elements to deal with not only the threat, but to deal with the casualties as well, too. And again, the contact team, other than intel that's being gathered over the phone, the contact team or teams are the only ones in position to confirm casualties. And the sooner they do it, the sooner we can get folks in there to deal with those casualties. But if they don't communicate that information, what feels like two minutes to them might actually turn into 20 and those and those victims are laying there and no one else has knowledge that they're even in there. And, on and also the contact teams are arguably the only ones in those early minutes to have any kind of, uh, you know, understanding of where the hot zone ends and the warm zone begins. 
And we know those contact officers are not going to be chatty over the radio. And we don't want them to be chatty over the radio. We want them to take care of business. But um, if, if they, let's say, stop the violence, then that's not to say they aren't going to continue to do their diligence and do a secondary search. And while a second shooter is a rarity, there's almost always reports of a second offender. And, those, and that has to be vetted. But what I say to people is at some point, those unified commanders are going to have to play the odds. Because if they wait until all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed, and they are absolutely certain that there's no other offender, people may arguably, victims may arguably suffer as a result of that. Yeah, and what you're talking about is a shift in mindset. And I, I think it's, and again, I'm not a, a doctor, but I think it's just our minds, right? Our minds want to process a checklist and stop the killing. Then I can focus on stop the dying because these are both incredibly high risk, complex problems with lots and lots of friction and fog and risk to you personally, to your organization, to your community. And so you really want to make this simpler for your brain to comprehend. So you're like, okay, I'm just going to focus on one or the other. Really, they're competing interests and you need to do them all at the same time. Doesn't mean you don't sequence it a little bit, but I agree there's got to be a, a little bit of a shift. And we see that in the fact that it's still taken us about 10 years to train rescue task forces. And yet rescue task forces are rarely used successfully. And not that we shouldn't learn them. I'm not saying that at all, but there's a lot of other things that law enforcement officers can do once the hunting teams are out doing what they're doing. You're going to flood with more people if you're in an urban area. They can form safety corridors. They can start providing triage, making casualty collection points and start progressing that. I don't even want to call it the second part of the strategy to stop the killing because it's it's not even the second. They're, they're the same. Now, granted, we have to stop the killing as far as an active assailant because we need to safely help everyone. But if you get enough people, you're probably going to use terrain and divide that up, like you said, in that warm zone. But do you see uh, across the country as uh, you travel uh, pretty consistent training with rescue task force and safety corridor and kind of shifting from what I would say when I first started was a lot of tactical loitering. In other words, I got uh, medical training twice a year and the majority of it in my uh, municipality was stabilize maybe and wait for fire. And if fire is close, look cool, then wait for fire. And uh, now, especially in these mass events, these active killer events, there's an expectation that that uh, it's nice to see across the country once carrying tourniquets, everyone trained on tourniquets. We couldn't say that 20 years ago. And now we're doing chest seals and our, our medical training for law enforcement is much higher, but the expectation is much higher. Hey, we have to, we have to, if you're not pulling security, you're not hunting the bad guy and start working on people, start helping out triage, start getting EMS in. Would you, would you agree with that? Is there anything I'm missing? No, not at all. I, and I, no, I would agree with it. I don't think you're missing anything. First of all, I think we're fortunate to have a number of entities out there that are providing some outstanding training in this regard. You've got the National Tactical Officers Association. You've got numerous state organizations. You also have the alert folks at Texas State University who are doing a tremendous job. Louisiana State University is doing training and 
And, uh, you know, that's not meant to be an all-inclusive list. There's a lot of other, other great entities out there. And I think that when you attend that formal training, you're learning concepts other than just rescue task force. Uh, the combining of law enforcement and fire EMS to enter the environment and do whatever you can for those victims. Now, a lot of people don't realize that over the past 25 years, there have actually been five different iterations of what's now referred to as rescue task force or warm zone care. In the immediate aftermath of Bank of America North Hollywood, I was advocating for what we called extraordinary deployment back in the day. But because Columbine High School, the tragedy of Columbine High School wouldn't occur for two more years, uh, myself and some others were ice skating uphill trying to advocate for medical providers other than SWAT medics entering the warm zones of, of these situations. A few years later, a group out of Milwaukee coined the term contain, contained threat escort tactics, and they actually wrote an article on it for the Tactical Edge, the quarterly publication of the National Tactical Officers Association. So people can go into the Tactical Edge archives and actually pull that article up, essentially the same thing. Then a few years later, a group in Colorado coined the term high-risk extraction protocol. Same thing, different name, maybe a different regional spin. But it wasn't until the folks in Arlington County, given the fact that the, uh, the complex coordinated terrorist attack in Mumbai had just occurred, their proximity to Washington, D.C., them uh, being smarter than their predecessors, using some NIMS-friendly language, such as, you know, rescue task force, they were able to gain more traction than any of their predecessors combined. And they continue to do great work to this day. But we just want to remind people that there's actually, there's actually four different types uh, or four different methods for taking care of these victims. And they include law enforcement rescue, otherwise known as extraction teams, and then protected corridor, and then protected island, which are very similar to each other, just depending on the venue. And then you have rescue task force. And as someone who's been advocating for this for, for 25 years, I will tell you that uh, my research and my travels have revealed that generally speaking, rescue task force is the last of those four methods to generally occur. It's almost always some law enforcement rescue first because there are LEOs inside the environment that have victims at their feet that are in critical condition. Fire and EMS have not entered the environment yet. So law enforcement starts moving those victims. Then at some point, like you mentioned earlier, you've got a surplus of LEOs inside and someone, whether they have rank or not, says, hey, let's get organized. Let's start locking down some corridors, locking down some rooms, taking ownership of this space, creating a, a safety bubble of sorts then they, that you can insert fire and EMS into, and they can do whatever they please inside that bubble. If there was a shooting or a stabbing at a bar within your community tonight, fire EMS is going to stage until law enforcement says, come on in, come on in, we own the bar. They've created a bubble and fire EMS go in there and they do their thing. This is exactly the same thing, just on a, on a larger scale and a much more dynamic situation, but fundamentally it's still the same. And then rescue task force is the fourth thing that happens. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. Now, would I love to see rescue task force move up the list 
and become the number one or number two way of, of taking care of victims, there's nothing that would please me more. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the risk appetites of those fire and EMS folks. It also comes down to the risk appetites of law enforcement as well, too, because you know, no law enforcement officer is going to want someone from fire and EMS to get hurt on their watch. And there actually have been some instances where fire and EMS are chomping at the bit to get in there. And the LEOs are saying, whoa, slow your roll. We're not quite sure what's hot and what's warm right now. But the communities that have endured these types of uh, these incidents before uh, inherently develop more risk appetite because they've been there, done that. So you look at uh, places like uh, uh, Colorado, where they've had a number of incidents, and, and Texas, where they've had another incidents. You know, there's, there's no denying that those fire and EMS agencies are more aggressive in the aftermath of those tragedies than they were uh, the day of or the, or the days leading into them. Yeah, and you bring up right back to an uh, initial point in the conversation, and that is you get that comfortability with risk and managing that by practice, right? By practicing on the small ones and getting your confidence up and reducing those friction points and building that trust with each other and understanding what you do. If you're, if you haven't learned from history, if you haven't done your training, if you haven't met your counterpart and worked through some of these issues, the time that it happens is not, is not the time where you're going to work it out and it's going to help. You got to well, do all the stuff before it happens. For any fire department or EMS personnel that are that are going to be listening to this podcast, I would say that uh, almost every fire department in the country today markets themselves as an all hazards fire department, which means wherever a resident of their community or a member of their community gets themselves into trouble your fire department will show up and solve that problem and rescue them from that environment. Whether it be a hazardous material situation, uh, a trench, a high angle situation, uh, hurricane conditions or other natural disasters like, like the earthquakes that uh, you know you, or wildfires that you sometimes experience in California. At the end of the day, active violence is just another discipline within, it's just another example of an austere environment that members of your community may get caught up in, caught up in, and if that fire department, that EMS agency, or that law enforcement agency has the equipment, training, and procedures to operate within that environment, what's the difference? What's the difference between those other technical rescue environments that we discussed earlier? Uh, and and it's not just the fire departments that are problem solvers. It's EMS. It's law enforcement. It's just like you said, building up that that comfort level, and and I'm actually one of the one of the few people out there amongst my peers that say, when fire and EMS is invited or asked to deploy into the environment, I think their risk is minimal. Now, I think law enforcement officers on contact, particularly solo officer response, that's dangerous work. But are we advocates for solo officer? Absolutely. Do we do we risk a lot to save a lot? Sure. But I would say by the time law enforcement is comfortable with fire and EMS entering that environment, I, I, I would argue they're, they're as safe as a babe in its mother's arms. You know, I don't want to minimalize the potential risk. But again, we're talking about warm zone operations here, not hot zone operations. And I think the average LEOs on the inside are going to double check it, triple check 
before they let fire an EMS in. Yeah, there's a balance there, right? So yeah, whole, wholeheartedly agree. And a couple of points I took from your philosophy and what you just said is we got to know our history, right? Know the data. There's a lot of active shooter information out there. Um, like you said, the second shooter, statistically speaking, probably not going to happen. Could it happen? Yeah, you're going to have to do something about it. But as the one of you know the portion is a unified command standing next to each other you're going to have to allocate those resources and prioritize where do they go what i would argue is based upon what's happening now your situational awareness and what's most likely happening right what does the history tell you what's the data tell you so am i going to send people to go make sure that's not a second shooter absolutely i am am i going to do it before i pull victims out of an area that's already a warm zone that's, that's a call you have to make, but you, you have to know the data and, and have the training to make that call. Well, growing up, I was never a math guy. I was definitely not a science guy. I loved history, but unfortunately, many of these active assailants, many of these offenders, they love history as well. And they're absolutely studying their predecessors. They're replicating tactics. And one general category of tactics that I, that I often talk about is what I call area denial. And that is a variety of tactics designed to slow emergency responders down. Whether we're talking about chains on the doors at Virginia Tech or the discharging of chemical agent at the Century 16 Theater in Aurora or the fashioning of an L bracket at the Mandalay Bay during the music festival. Uh, actually, August 1st, 1966, the infamous incident at the University of Texas, Austin, that offender barricaded himself onto the observation deck where the officers and civilian that, that ultimately ascended that tower to confront him had to overcome those fortifications. And there certainly are offenders out there that are worshiping uh, these past offenders. So they're, they're gonna, you know, we're gonna see more and more of these area denial tactics. We've certainly seen a, a fair share of ambushes over the years. And uh, something that we're very worried about right now is, you know, what's termed fire as a weapon, and that is someone weaponizing fire. And I think something else that we need to be tuned into is right now with the, the risk appetites that currently occur or exist within fire and EMS, uh, I say it's not hard to knuckleball fire and EMS. It's not hard to give them a moment of pause to have them say, oh, hell to the no. I'm not, we're not going in that environment, which puts even more of a burden on law enforcement. So there was an incident that occurred in the Midwest where uh, they had, uh, they had every law enforcement officer, firefighter, and EMS provider within that region had trained on warm zone care for, for years, felt as though they had a good handle on it. The incident occurs. Law enforcement, uh, the patrol response was outstanding and they, they stopped the violence very quickly and then turned to their fire department partners and said, okay, we're ready for you to, to enter the environment and do your thing. But unfortunately, one of the fire department supervisors heard some chatter over the radio about a potential second shooter. There was no co hasty co-located unified command so that boss from the fire department couldn't lean over to his or her law enforcement counterpart and say, hey, I'm hearing talk about a second shooter, whereas the patrol supervisor would have said, yeah, that's bad scoop. 
uh, we own the environment and you can absolutely bring your folks in. But because of that bad intel that the fire department command officer was hearing, there was a significant delay in getting those fire and EMS, EMS folks into that environment. And I think that there's going to be, there's going to be, you know, it doesn't take the most devious offender out there to realize that that's an opportunity for them to maybe um, increase their numbers as it relates to the, the death tolls with these, you know, with these incidents, which is often, often the case, their motivation. In this video game era, you've got someone out there that is, you know, pardon the description, but Las Vegas is currently the high score uh, within, you know, the United States. And there are people out there saying, you know, what can I do to kill more than 60 people? You're right. And if you think that they're not studying each other, sending each other letters in jail, reading each other's stuff and talking about it with each other, they are and and they're absolutely studying our tactics and all that stuff. Hey, going, going back to history a little bit, you have been involved in this for a long time. And as we know, history uh, repeats itself in some form or the other in our lives. And when you live long enough, you start seeing it. And uh, it can be discouraging because we're fighting the, pushing the same rock up the same hill. But uh, back in the 90s, we used to uh, train, and you were involved in this, about utilizing technology to make medical assessments during, uh, during events. And it was a little bit different than the, than the iteration now. But talk a little bit about what that is, because I think that we're doing it a little bit, but I don't know that we're doing it in a uh, purposeful, educated way. I think it's more just an evolution, like a lot of things in law enforcement. Here's a problem. Let me probe it and figure out what works. And which is okay. That's how we solve a lot of great things. But how do we share that information? How do we make it standard operating procedures and train with fire and EMS so that we can do this efficiently? Well, that's a great question. I think the first example of it is that, uh, and this is something that uh, that Cato and the Los Angeles County uh, Sheriff's Department can take pride in. The first SWAT medic program occurred 51 years ago, you know, with LA County sheriffs. So SWAT medics have been around for 51 years and uh, something that many SWAT medics are familiar with or tactical emergency medical support providers is what's known as medicine across the barricade. And that is where they can work hand in hand with crisis negotiators, or let's say you've got a, uh, you've got a hostage barricade and negotiators are involved and they're talking either to the hostage taker or someone else inside the environment and we would never put SWAT medics on the phone actively negotiating or actively inquiring, but they certainly can listen in and they can prod the negotiators to ask certain questions to come to a determination as to the, uh, the urgency of any casualties within that environment. And then they can report that to the crisis negotiators. They can report that to the tactical commanders saying, you know, one example would be, Hey, that person in there, they're, they're mildly ill or they've got minor injuries. They can suck it up for a while. There's no urgency based on their medical condition versus the other end of the spectrum where it sounds like that person inside is in bad shape, whether they're having a heart attack or they've been shot. And just based on the limited information that I was able to gather listening in, there's a chance that they may die in, in, you know, within the next minutes or the next hour. And at that point, then the, the commanders can process that information 
uh, along with all the other intel that they have and decide whether or not a crisis entry or a hostage rescue is warranted. So I think that's probably the first example of remote assessment within a tactical environment. But, but at the same time, there, you know, who knows who the first person was that used some binoculars or other optics to view a casualty down in the open who is, you know, currently or initially inaccessible to, uh, to you know, officers trying to effect a rescue, whether it be on foot or patrol vehicle based or using armor like a bearcat, trying to make the determination, hey, is this a rescue or is this a recovery? Yeah, and uh, a lot of people are going to be uncomfortable with that because like, you're asking me as a law enforcement officer to prioritize where my resources go based upon a guess of uh, large different victims scattered around uh, that I don't know. And, and my answer to that would be, well, I'm putting people in harm's way. And so I'm going to prioritize where they go based upon the need of the victim. So if I have victims I know that are stable and that can make it a couple hours, or I think they can, versus I know this one can't, then I'm gonna prioritize our rescue efforts to that person. And everyone would agree with that. The, the difference is it's pretty foggy. And so I'm gonna make that just as a guess, or I'm gonna use whatever technology and people I have at my disposal as a leader and work with fire EMS, to go, what do you think? Here's the information I have. Either we see them, we use drones, we use robots, we use binoculars, we use listening on the voice, we use anything we can get to start prioritizing our efforts and taking pieces of the puzzle. And if you look at it from that point of view, in the end, you're, you're looking at bad, everybody wants an all or nothing answer. It's gonna be all good or it's gonna be all bad. In reality, this is just the lesser of evils, a bad versus bad. So I'm going to do everything I can to use the technology and science available to me to make the best decision that I have. And for me, an elementary example would be, are you going to send four patrol guys or SWAT guys in the harm's way to kick a door to rescue a dead body? Like, well, well, I don't know if they're dead. Okay, well, do you have a way that you could take 30 seconds to a minute to figure out if they're dead? Because if you lose a deputy or officer in those in that rush, was that worth it? Maybe not, maybe it was. Now, no one can make you, I'm not second guessing anybody if you were involved in that and you're listening, I'm not saying you did it wrong. I'm just saying, if we shift how we think a little bit and go, do I have the ability to just get a little bit more in information that helps me make that decision? And maybe you don't, maybe you can't. But if I have to stand there in court, in California, maybe criminal court, and explain how I prioritized and sequenced my resources and my people. And I can say, we made the best medical assessments we could from a safe distance using X, Y, and Z. And these professionals and I talked, that's about the best you can ask for any human being in those kind of extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, I think what we're talking about here is just doing your diligence as much as the situation will allow. So the one thing I want to be clear, uh, you know, clear on is that if you can affect, you know, a successful officer rescue, or whoever else is down, uh, you know, we don't want you to wait for a piece of technology. I mean, do what you do, but we have we've all 
seen or, or heard of instances where that environment can, you know, that casualty is down, maybe in an outdoor environment that cannot, that isn't conducive to a patrol vehicle approaching or a piece of armor approaching, or maybe the armor is 15 or 30 minutes away. And it could be, it could be an LEO without medical training that's making that remote assessment, that, that remote judgment, or it could be a, a SWAT medic. It could be a conventional medic. It's just another tool in the toolbox that is available to someone should it be appropriate for that environment. But we certainly don't want to slow down the rescue process. But like you said, we don't want to hazard people unnecessarily either. And uh, so that's at the upcoming Cato conference, we're going to have some training in this regard where, and, and there are many teams, if not all teams are already doing this, where you have a barricade and you suspect that the, uh, that the uh, subject is self-inflicted and maybe you're sending a bot or a drone in there uh, to try and uh, confirm that or give you just a little bit more information to work with. All we're doing is we're expanding upon what a lot of teams out there all, are already doing. And just giving them an opportunity. And we're not saying that there's only one way to do it. Actually, what, what we're doing is we're allowing them to experiment. And as we do that training, they may come up with ideas that we as a cadre haven't even thought of either. But at the end of the day, I think that every law enforcement officer is capable of identifying obvious signs of life or death. So you know what we're looking for is uh, rise and fall of the chest movement of the eyes, movement of the hands, whether or not there's any obvious non-survivable wounds. Uh, we're not trying to turn them into EMTs or paramedics or physicians, uh, and they may have to make a very difficult judgment call, but if they're not comfortable making that call, then go to plan B. You know, do your diligence and, and affect that rescue, but uh, you know, we all know that there have been some examples, including in the state of California in recent years, where we couldn't get to that individual in as timely a manner as we would have liked to. Yeah, and that's really the point, right? You, you said it much better than I did and more succinctly, but, you know, have a plan, train the plan, have options, don't get yourself locked in, and, and be able to articulate why. You're going to do the best you can with probably the worst situation that you've ever dealt with. Um, that being said, I know we're getting short on time, but talk to us a little bit about your development of the Active Assailant Conference, because that's kind of a culmination of a lot of things we talked about today. So every year in the Metro Detroit area, I host the uh, North American Active Assailant Conference. Um, our, our sixth annual North American Active Assailant Conference is going to be June 7th through the 9th of 2023. And we'll have uh, approximately 3,000 attendees coming in from throughout the world. And really, what one of the things that makes the conference unique is the fact that there's no shortage of law enforcement conferences out there that feature law enforcement debriefs. And the same thing could be said with fire and EMS conferences. We actually have collaborative debriefs at our conference. And debriefs is all that we do. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of smart folks out there and experienced folks that have a lot of great information to share on how they feel these critical incidents should be managed, but we just defer that to other conferences and all we have are collaborative debriefs. So whether they're coming from a small community like Southern Own Springs, Texas, population 600, or Mumbai, India, population in the millions, 
we bring uh, someone from the lead law enforcement agency in and someone from the lead fire or EMS agency in, and they spend an hour and a half to two hours talking about not only what went well, but the challenges they had as well. And, and we encourage them to be very forthcoming. There's no media there. There's no recording. And it's actually, it continues to be how surprising, how, how honest and forthright they are. And to hear that firsthand information uh, from those that were there, we all know is invaluable. But it's, it's, it's interesting how the LEOs, and really the attendance is like 50-50. So if we have 3,000 people there, I'd say it's about 1,500 LEOs and about 1,500 fire EMS. And the LEOs love hearing the fire EMS piece because they find it fascinating and they get a more comprehensive understanding of the intricacies of these uh, incidents. And the same thing could be said for the fire EMS folks, hearing the law enforcement lessons learned as well too. So uh, this conference has been so successful that uh, we've had organizations like the Ohio Tactical Officers Association reach out to me and, and I've assisted them with a couple similar events over the years. And uh, now the National Tactical Officers Association has asked me to do the same. So we're going to be doing these one-day regional events uh, all throughout North America. Actually, the first one is going to be in um, Coral Springs, Florida, which is very close to Fort Lauderdale on Tuesday, October 25th. And it's featuring debris from uh, the Bataclan in Paris, uh, Utoya Island in Norway, and then uh, Aurora, Colorado, the theater and, uh, and uh, the music festival in Las Vegas. So just kind of a one day event, collaborative debriefs, you're in, you're out, you're gathering a lot of good information that you can bring back to your agency and, and build upon um, you know, the efforts that you already have underway. Just a lot of meat on those bones there, those four debriefs, man. <laughs> those alone could be a whole day themselves. So that's great. You're Norway, tons of stuff about Norway you can learn. But we, we always make sure there's a strong SWAT nexus and there's a strong TEMS or, or tactical medical nexus as well, too. And like there's meat on the bone for everyone. I mean, we have um, law enforcement, fire, EMS, emergency management, uh, hospital personnel, corporate security, uh, you know, all all attend. It's a governmental event. It's a nonprofit event. So uh, it's, it's very inexpensive uh, to attend. And we've had people, uh, in five years, we've never had one single negative evaluation. And uh, we have a very robust recognition program as well, too. And something that I think um, you know, members of Cato will particularly appreciate is we have an award for valor that we've named after Sergeant uh, Ron Helis from the Ventura County Sheriff's Office, given the tragedy at the borderline. And then we've got uh, a number of other awards. And we've just had so many attendees say, that is, it's the most emotional and intoxicating conference that uh, they've ever attended. But just given, given the fact that we're talking mass murder for three days, we're doing our diligence as it relates to mental health. And we actually have a number of mental health professionals on scene that can confidentially uh, talk to people who might be triggered based on their personal or uh, professional, professional experiences. Uh, so we're just trying to, you know, cover a lot of bases. And uh, again, maybe, you know, everyone can look forward to a, a, a regional event from the NTOA um, coming uh, someplace near you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, super valuable, right, to, to be with 
the other the uh, other folks that we go to these calls with, right? Instead of just hanging out with only cops, we're hanging out with the the fire, the EMS people, and then the docs that help clean all of us up a little bit. Uh, and if, if they're not helping you figure that out when you're done doing something like this, you better go find them because you're gonna you're gonna need to talk to somebody about it. And uh, so, well, and, and with, with, the, with all these incidents, it's the same thing. It's you know issues related to command communication collaboration uh you know we and, and also mental health those are the four major issues that we hear in, in the aftermath of every event yeah that's a big one that people don't like talking about that last one but it's a big one we lose a lot of folks we lose a lot of folks on both sides for that so uh thanks for your time uh as far as uh where folks can go to learn more about this i would say uh study your history, study your after actions. We talked about Mumbai. Mumbai was a key turning point in law enforcement training, especially when it comes to uh, dealing with some of these kind of events. Uh, Norway, big lessons learned in Norway. Paris, Paris attacks. Uh, Barcelona, Colorado, several. I mean, there's so much out there that we can learn from. And then as far as uh, active assailant stuff, you've got your conference. Uh, Jim does a podcast every now and again with folks to uh, talk about his work. Follow him on social media. He's got some great posts. What else, uh, where else can people go to learn? Well, I just say, if you don't mind, I'd just, just take, to take a moment to say that uh, when, when people ask me, you know, what are one, two or three things that we can do at the onset of these types of incidents to get off on the right footing and I just wanted to share my opinion or my thoughts on that. The first, which we've talked about already, is the uh, quick establishment of hasty co-located unified command. And we've talked about the importance of that and the benefits of that. And when you don't do it, there's so many things that can go wrong. When you look at the, uh, the for lack of a better word, the failure, the public safety failures over the years, and we all know those incidents, they're almost always attributed to the lack of unified you know, command. And, uh, you know, that, there's something else I want to say on that, too, is that these incidents are all very difficult. They all have their challenges. But if it goes particularly wrong, if you get more things wrong than right, it can actually define your agency for a generation. And there are a number of agencies out there, law enforcement and fire EMS, that have to regain uh, the confidence and faith of those they serve you know, based on the public perception, whether it's warranted or not, whether it's spot on or not, of their efforts during these tragedies. So the, the hasty co-located unified command, other than stopping the violence, again, I think that's the second most important thing. Uh, one other thing that I think is worth mentioning is my research has revealed that um, approximately 75% of the casualties within the inner perimeter of these tragedies that cannot remove themselves are removed by law enforcement for a variety of reasons. So for those chiefs and sheriffs out there that say, great, our fire department and our EMS partners are finally talking about this rescue task force thing, which means our deputies and our officers and our troopers aren't gonna have to touch victims anymore. No, they're still going to three quarters of the time. Uh, so, and, uh, when I, when I do the class out of the Cato conference, I'll get into that data and the specifics of that. And then the third thing I would, I would mention that I, I think is, uh, uh, essential is 
not only is it important for law enforcement to set up some form of containment, and it may not be the prettiest containment you've ever established. I mean, we talked about you want to get contact teams in there. You want to get someone taking charge outside. And then you got to set up some form of containment to keep the bad guys in and keep the good folks out. Because unfortunately, one of the byproducts um, of Uvalde and some other tragedies, you know, something no, there's many noteworthy things going on uh, as we were talk about Uvalde. But one of them is the fact that law enforcement officers who responded from 45 minutes away were part of the tactical resolution. And I think it's actually going to make the self-deployment worse because what confidence and faith do LEOs have in those that protect the community that they and their families live in? And how much more apt are they going to be to, to respond, whether they were invited or not? Uh, the high school shooting that we had in our county in, in Oxford, Michigan, on November 30th uh, of last year, there were more uh, family members of emergency responders inside that high school than I had ever heard of in the past. So there were, a, there were, there were a lot of emergency responders that were rolling towards that school with a loved one in the building because that part of the county is cop land for us. It's where a lot of LEOs and firefighters and EMS providers, even federal agents live because it's a beautiful, quiet part of our county. So, uh, but, you know, not only is it important for law enforcement to set up some form of containment early, because we're also seeing more and more civilians trying to enter that environment to quote unquote rescue their loved ones. So we got to keep the bad people in and we got to keep the well-intentioned good people out. But I talk about the, the benefits of the fire department establishing a perimeter as well. And by that, I mean that we're, you know, we're all going to flock to the one side. We're all going to flock to the alpha side or the front side of the building. We're going to have that down cold. But what's going on on the other three sides? And think about the, section, the Century 16 Theater in Aurora, where at one point they had nine critical casualties on the backside of the theater, including a small child. They're looking up at the moonlight. They're calling for fire EMS. And because of a chain of events, you know, they weren't getting the ambulances and they ended up transporting a lot of victims to the hospital themselves. And then if we could do that all over again, imagine the power of one fire truck with a boss and maybe two or three firefighters on it on the backside of that theater, whether their standoff distance is 50 feet away or 500 feet away, and they are basically, they own that side of the building. They're setting up a casualty collection point, and that fire engine boss, who might be a lieutenant or captain, is reporting to Unified Command out front. Either things are nasty back here, and we need a lot of resources, or things are copacetic. Go ahead and send the resources elsewhere. So using the terrain to make the problem a little smaller and more manageable. Absolutely, because on structure fires, what fire department command officers want to do is what's called a 360 degree survey. So they want to try and they want to literally sometimes walk around or drive around that location to minimize the number of surprises to want to see what they're getting themselves into. Now, it's impractical to expect them to do that on the average active violence uh, scenario. But what I call it is 360 by committee. So you've got the incident commanders, let's say, on the front side, and then you've got maybe a law enforcement and a fire service boss in each of those other three sectors, and they're reporting to command the, the sit rep on, on their side of the building or the environment. 
then what you're going to do, I, I think the greatest dividend that that pays is I often say that there's three layers of casualties that you're going to encounter. The first layer are the people outside. Uh, those are low-hanging fruit. Try and take care of them as quickly as you can. Then the contact teams will encounter people in open spaces inside like corridors and, and cafeterias or food courts or libraries or whatever the case is. That's the second layer. And we're going to collectively go in there and, and solve that problem as quickly as we can. And then the third layer is the people who are hiding the people who are, who are sheltered in place within a classroom or a closet. And it, there's a lot of challenges associated with finding those people in a timely manner. But if we set up that perimeter with fire, with fire trucks in any direction that a casualty may spill out, we can account for them. And we can take care of that low, that low hanging fruit or that first layer of casualties, get that first wave of casualties onto the way, the critical ones on the way to the hospital as soon as possible and then get ready for that second layer, and then get ready for that third layer. And uh, everywhere I go, I've gone, I, matter of fact, I, I did this class uh, for uh, some uh, command officers from Las Vegas Metro and Clark County Fire and Las Vegas Fire, and also Orlando PD and FD and Orange County, Florida, uh, sheriffs and fire department. They were particularly intrigued with that because they hadn't heard that before. And I said, let that, let that marinate a little bit. And when you kind of think about the benefits of that, it'll grow on you. And I think that there's been a lot of agencies after hearing that that's something that's even permissible or possible or encouraged are starting to do that. So just well, as a round for, yeah, and it, it simplifies command and control, right? Yes, so that, ab absolutely. It's going to push decision-making lower down the chain to people with the best situational awareness it's going to reduce communication friction because it's not. Now, it doesn't mean you don't report to the incident commander, but you can delegate those tasks out. And, and law enforcement does that. When we do it right, it works real smooth and you don't get overwhelmed by events as the commander. And, and in medically terms, the same thing would work, you know, but you got to have more points for people to go to. Well, and we've all heard that radio traffic where patrol officers on the perimeter are unintentionally competing with themselves for resources. Hey, I've got three down here. I've got two down here. So as the incident commander, how do you figure out, you know, and you've only got a few ambulances or a few officers or a few firefighters, where do you send them? But so, it, so it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's more organized, but it's, it's, it's doable. It, it's not something that would be impractical or unreasonable to achieve. So, you know, in summary, I would just say that that, that hasty co-located unified command, uh, don't resist the law enforcement rescue, embrace it and build upon it because it's going to happen. And that's setting a perimeter with, uh, with the fire department, not just with the law enforcement. If you do those three things, that will really get you off on, on, on the right footing, I think. And then just the last thing I want to say is the mental health piece. Like you said, no one likes to talk about it. Uh, you know, we made a, you know, we made our share of, uh, you know, mistakes with our incident on November 30th. And there were some things that went well. And one of the things that particularly went well was that um, the Oakland County Sheriff's Office, which uh, is the county that, that I'm in, has clinical psychologists that are on the road. And they are reserve deputies who are paired with fully sworn deputies. And they're on duty during peak times. And if someone is in crisis on a street corner or elsewhere, they can respond in real time and start de-escalating that situation and maybe ultimately prevent a use of force. So it's a very progressive program that uh, is still in its infancy within our county, but 
uh, it's something that uh, our sheriff's office and our, our sheriff is very proud of. Well, those folks responded to this recent high school shooting that they had and were actually able to decompress people right then and there. So they didn't have to wait a couple of days for some critical incidents, stress debriefing, or wait a, a week or a month for some trauma therapy. They were actually sending people home or back to the station from that scene in, in better shape than they otherwise would have uh, been. So what I say is, like on that particular incident, there were probably at least 30 law enforcement bosses doing boss work. And each one of those bosses had a span of control. Let's say they had six people working for each one of them, six, eight people, whatever it was. And I would say that if you're a boss, a supervisor on one of these incidents, one of the most important things that you could do is actually towards the end of the incident. And that is before you cut your people loose, Lock eyes with them one at a time and take their temperature. See how they're doing. If they seem like they're doing reasonably well, well, then you can release them back to their life and then obviously follow up and make sure that they get the, you know, whatever it is they need later on. But if they've got that stare, then you know, do whatever it takes to get them decompressed on that scene before you send them home to their family. And at the end of the day, it may save someone's career, relationship, or maybe even their life. Yeah, all three, right? Because that's, that's just the beginning. So start them off uh, on the right foot. Yeah, it won't fix it all right away, but at least you're, you're keeping it from getting bigger. So yeah, thank you very much. You're uh, appreciate all your time. Looking forward to seeing you here uh, in November. And uh, safe travels. I know that you're busy and you just landed at home briefly. And uh, I know you got some more stuff with the NTUA, and I'm, I'm sure we'll uh, see you in California again soon, too. But uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate you being on the show. Well, thanks for the opportunity, and thanks for all the great work that, uh, that Cato continues to do. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, Please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.